Hey everyone, you're listening to an Acts Church sermon. If you have not heard of us before, you can check us out at www.axcamus.org or come check us out on a Sunday. All right, here is the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. When I was younger, I used to play golf a lot more than I do now. Uh, but, but when I was younger, I used to play golf. Well, I don't know if anybody else loves to um, put a lot of time and effort and energy and money into something uh, so that you can feel inept, angry, frustrated, and clumsy. But since I know that some of you men are married, you must have, have done that. So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sort of. All right. When I was younger, I used to play golf more often. I was, I was very competitive. I did not like to lose. I did not like to play badly, and that was a real bummer because I usually lost and played badly. Uh, still do. Um, I remember playing over at Beacon Rock Golf Course uh, years ago, and, and this is how bad I was. I was, don't remember which tee I was on, but I, I got my driver, and I hit the ball, and I mean, I smacked it hard, and it went straight for about five feet, and then just directly to the right in a very hard slice curve pattern. Way over into the fairway of the other people over there, there's a couple guys, a couple gentlemen walking down the fairway, and it's coming at them. And so, of course, I yelled, four, which again makes you feel stupid because what does four mean? I don't know. Looked it up on the internet. Even golfers don't know. There's like three different possibilities of where the word came from. I don't know why I wouldn't go, ball, because that's what's coming at you, right? Or run, heads up, or something like that. There are other words that I use when I hit bad golf shots, but I won't mention any of those. Uh, so we said, you know, so I yelled four, um, and, and the, the folks that heard it, they got scared, so these, these two gentlemen, they ran behind a tree. They ran behind a tree, and the ball curved so hard that it came out, it came around the tree and hit this guy in the back. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of the walk of shame into someone else's fairway to retrieve your golf ball, um, but I had that, and as I went over there, I realized that the gentleman that I hit was an, was an elderly gentleman who had been brought to the golf course by his son, you know, as a special gesture to play this game of golf, and I hit him with a golf ball. So I felt bad. Um, and and it's, it's rough, right? I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but I can tell you this. When I play golf poorly, which was all the time, I would get angry. I would get really, really angry. I get so worked up when I played bad. I remember one time, same golf course, I hit a bad shot, um, and, and after I did so, I took my golf bag off my shoulder and I threw it on the ground and then I took each golf club out of that golf bag one at a time and hucked them down the fairway, one at a time, which is really fun when you have to go get them all. You feel very mature is what you feel. Um, it was a long time. It was like two weeks ago. So no, <laughs> it's like two decades ago, but I get angry. Why? Why would I get angry? You all ever gotten worked up? You ever been angry? You ever exploded in anger? You ever yelled at your spouse or your kids or your parents or your friends or another driver on the road? Some of you, I won't name names. But why do you get angry? Why? We have been in a series of messages of sermons called Right Side Up. And it's about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount it's Matthew chapters 5 through 7 uh, in the Bible, and, and he's, he's basically, it's the righteous one, Jesus Christ, teaching us what righteousness looks like. And what he shows us is that righteousness 
our, our view from the world's perspective is upside down from the view that God has of what righteousness is. And God and Jesus in this, in this sermon is turning it right side up. And so that's kind of where we're coming from. How do we be good disciples of Jesus Christ? In order to do so, we have to live right side up. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is actually basically the body of the sermon, it starts and closes with Jesus referencing the law and the prophets. Because it's Jesus who has come and fulfills the law and the prophets. So in Matthew 5, 17, the beginning of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And when we get to the end of this section, Lord willing, we'll get to this verse. Matthew 7, 12, it says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So everything we study in this section needs to be understood correctly in terms of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets through his birth, through his life, through his ministry, through his death, through his resurrection, through his approaching return. All of those things that Jesus is were fulfilling the law and the prophets. And it needs to be seen through the principle and the spirit of the law and the prophets, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus points part of that out here where he says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Treat others how you would like to be treated. You all learned this in kindergarten, right? This is, this is the golden rule. Everybody sort of knows about this. So that's our framework for what we study that follows. So let's, let's keep that framework in mind. Let's say our scripture for the day. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. If you have your Bible, you can grab it, if you can see in here. Um, If not, it'll be up on the screen where I do think you'll be able to see. All right. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. This is a serious piece of Jesus Christ's teaching. And he starts by sort of giving us this uh, view of anger and talking about anger and violence through murder and anger in the heart. Anger in the heart. What is clear is that there is a lot more to righteousness than just what we do physically. It's a lot more to righteousness than just what we do. What we do is important, but what we think what we allow ourselves to wallow in emotionally, what's in our heart is a a huge part of what righteousness is too. That's where it all starts. And we'll see as we look through the teachings of Jesus Christ that he is always looking at the heart. He's always looking to the heart, not just to what we do, but to the heart. And he is the only one, God is the only one who can see our hearts. And that's important. That's really important for two reasons. One, It's important because we have to realize that we cannot hide from God what we think we can hide from other people. 
We cannot hide from God what we think we can hide from others. We may, we may think that our thoughts are our own, that our actions that are done in the dark or outside of where people can see are our own, but they're not. God sees it all. He sees right through us. He sees into our hearts. He knows our heart, and he knows that it's from our heart that unrighteousness comes, that unrighteousness is born. This is what he says in Matthew 15, 16 through 20. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. But we, we still try to hide from God, right? We still try to hide from him. From the very beginning, the fall, chapter 3 of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve sinning, messing up, and hiding. This is what it says in, in uh, Genesis 3, 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? As if he didn't know, right? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He's hiding. Now, I would hide, too, if I was naked, not necessarily because of sin. It's just really unpleasant to have to see. My wife said amen last service when I mentioned that. <laughs> I cried a little bit. Um, this whole idea of hiding from God, whether physically or thinking that we can hide our thoughts or what's in our heart, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Listen to what David, King David of Israel, the psalmist, writes in Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where can I flee from your spirit? Or where will I run from your presence? If I rise to heaven, you are there. If I lay down with the dead, there you are. If I take wings with the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, your hand will guide me there too. While your right hand keeps a firm grip on me. If I say darkness will surely conceal me and the light around me will become night, even darkness isn't dark to you. Darkness and light are the same to you. God sees right through it. God sees the heart. But here's the other thing, the second thing that's important. We do not. We do not see the hearts of other people. How many times is our anger directed at someone because we assume we know their motives and their intentions? I can tell you right now, of all the things that I do to annoy people and to annoy my wife and my kids and whoever, only about half of them are intentional, right? The other half are totally unintentional. I'm just careless, right? People don't realize how often other people are just not paying attention. I don't know how many times I have cut somebody off on the road, not because I was trying to cut them off, but I just wasn't paying attention, right? And the person behind me, based on the lights flashing, the honking, and the finger signals, they thought that I was cutting them off on purpose, right? I think that's what that finger means. I don't know what it means, but, but I think that it wasn't saying you're number one, right? And so they're assuming my motives, that I was like trying to, trying to cut them off. And the truth is, I wasn't being a jerk. I'm just careless, which is also not good. But you care a lot more when somebody trips you intentionally versus somebody who accidentally bumps into you and knocks you over, right? There's a difference. We assume different motives and we assume different levels of offense. But we assume sometimes that we know why other people do the actions that they do. We can read their motives. We think if someone doesn't call us back right away, that's because they're a jerk or they don't like us or they're ignoring us, whatever. When maybe that's not why. Maybe someone is just meeting with their parole officer. That's happened with me and Todd this week. I'm sorry. 
Todd, that I thought you were being a jerk, but I understand. Oh, it was, it was Lori's parole officer. Okay. There, oh, she is his parole officer. We, we don't know what people's motives are, so we should not think that we can see the heart. There is no doubt that sin begins in the heart, but be very careful assuming that every offense that you take was intended to offend you because you cannot see the heart. This passage also shows us that violence is done to others in more ways than just bloodshed, more ways than just fists and weapons. I don't know how everyone else feels about this, but there's an old rhyme that we used to say when I was a kid. It's probably been said for a long time. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Total lie. Total lie, right? Not true. Words hurt. They hurt bad. Especially, this is important, especially harsh words from those who we are the closest to, from those who we have the the most loving and close relationships with. Those are the words that hurt the most. And the really, really unfortunate thing is that the people who we often are the quickest to say things that we ought not to say, to say harsh words, to say condemning words, are the people who are closest to us the people who those words hurt the most. If my wife or my kids or my siblings or my friends or whoever, my family, any of you that I love so much were to say certain things to me, it would cause me great pain. Words hurt. Words hurt. I would rather have the rod than the tongue. I would rather have a punch in my face than certain harsh words said to me. The tongue is a very powerful and very dangerous thing. Listen to what James writes in uh, James 3, 7 through 10. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The Holy Spirit inspires James to write this because it is dead true. The tongue is, can be very evil. It can be very evil. And I would rather take a punch than verbal abuse most of the time. But to be honest with you, I'd rather have neither. I'd rather have you show me the grace that you would want for yourself, which is where we need to get to. Because you can do great harm. We can do great harm with our words. Anger and angry words dehumanize other people. They dehumanize other people. We read the words of Jesus Christ earlier when he said, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Raka is probably not a word that you use a lot. I'm guessing that you don't use that word a lot. It's a word of contempt from the first century. And fool is, is not really the way we would, uh, use the word fool to sort of mean you're not very wise or something like that. It was much more than that. It was a, it was a contemptuous, uh, judgmental, disdainful, scornful thing to say to somebody. It said that they were basically worthless and godless. It was a contemptuous thing to say. These are words that devalue and dehumanize other people. That's what they do. They are words that we use all the time. Not necessarily these ones, but ones just like them that do the same thing. We use them all the time to put people down. And just even the idea of putting people down is dehumanizing. 
What, are we, what do we mean putting them down? We mean trying to lift ourselves up by putting somebody else down. We're devaluing, we're dehumanizing when we put people down. When we speak those kinds of words in anger. I looked up uh, contempt on dictionary.com because I'm too lazy to get a real book. And it discussed the, the word contempt and its synonyms, disdain and scorn. This is what it said. Contempt, disdain, scorn implies strong feelings of disapproval and aversion toward what seems base, mean, or worthless. Contempt is disapproval tinged with disgust. Disdain is feeling that a person or thing is beneath one's dignity and unworthy of one's notice, respect, or concern. Scorn denotes open or undisguised contempt, often combined with derision. When we lash out in anger with our tongue, we are showing contempt, disdain, and scorn for people who are made in the image and likeness of God. And who are we to claim that women and men and children made in the image and likeness of God are worthless or are disgusting or unworthy Who are we to say that other people are beneath our own dignity or don't deserve our respect? But we use these words. People use words of contempt and derision all the time, often when they're angry. And Jesus Christ is telling us something big here. He's saying that when we do that, it's like murder. It's like murder. Because in our hearts, we are devaluing and hating our brothers and sisters when we speak this way in anger. It's very serious. Murder is devaluing another human life through violence. Words of contempt and scorn and disdain are devaluing another human life with the tongue. They both come from the same place in the heart. Both are unrighteous. Both are sin. Both lead to judgment and hell. That's what Jesus is telling us here. You cannot spit on your brother or your sister with your words when these people are made in the image and likeness of God and think that God is going to be okay with that. You cannot think that you're going to dehumanize my daughter or my son and think that you and me are going to be okay. If you dehumanize my child, you're going to get a father's righteous wrath. If you dehumanize God's child, you're going to get the father's righteous wrath. It's a lot worse than mine. It's real. Anger is about selfishness, and anger is about pride. That's what they're about. Earlier I said, why do I get angry? Why do you get angry? We get angry because we're prideful. We're prideful. That's why we get angry. We're selfish. We lift ourselves up. We see the world as a ladder, and we want to get to the top of it. We see some people as below us, and we kick at them. We see some people as above us, and we try to yank them down. That's the way that we live in this world. That's the upside-downness of our world and of our culture. We ignore what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write in Romans 12, verse 3. It says this, For I say, through the grace given to me, To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And instead of doing that, and instead of putting our value in God, and not letting ourselves be moved so much by other people, instead of doing that, we measure our worth in the respect and praise of other people, instead of the love and affection we have in Jesus Christ. 
And boy, does that cause problems. How many likes did I get on my last selfie? Seven. No, I'm kidding. I don't do selfies. Am I making more money than my neighbor? And is anyone noticing? Did I make captain of the team? Did that guy just look at me wrong? Did that person just cut me off? Is my wife being nice enough to me like I deserve? Is my husband being nice enough to me like I deserve? Are my parents realizing how capable I am? And on and on and on. We thrive on recognition and a weird version of self-esteem that's been brought into our culture. And it's just pride and it's selfish and it leads to anger every time that we get offended. Every time that that pride and that selfishness gets offended, it leads to anger. What if the guy did cut you off? What if he did? Is he worthless and worthy of your contempt? Or is he made in the image and likeness of God, and maybe the guy's just having a bad day? What if you didn't get enough likes? What if you don't make as much money as you'd like? Are you worth less because of that? Why do you get angry? Because you're more concerned, we are more concerned with our own pride and our own self-importance than we are with the person who offended us. We're willing to take that person down in our anger in order to make them feel the pain that we feel in our offense. We lift ourselves above others. That's where the anger comes from. Remember the last verse of this section says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now here's the thing about anger. Anger is the opposite of whatever you want men to do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's the opposite. When you let anger rule in your heart, you are not sowing to the spirit, but to the flesh, to the body, to your pride, to your selfishness. You're not thinking about the value and the best for your neighbor at all. If you're a human being, and I believe that most of you are, you probably have a double standard. Let me tell you about this double standard. It goes something like this. If I tell a lie, it was a mistake. It was a one-off. I probably have a good excuse for it. But if not, it's still totally forgivable. Lying is not part of my character. I'm not a liar. I just happen to tell a lie. If my brother or my sister tells a lie to me, it's much simpler. They are a liar. Right? It's clearly part of their character. They told a lie because they're a horrible person and they're probably an Oregon Duck fan. That's... That's the level. You keep quiet. Those are words of anger. If I yell at you, I'm probably justified. Because, you know, I didn't have enough to eat or I was too tired or maybe you really deserved it. But if it's not justified, at least it's forgivable because, of course, I'm not a jerk. I'm not abusive. It was a one-off. It's not part of my character. If my brother or sister yells at me, it's much simpler. She's a jerk, an abuser, has a bad character. It's a way that we view the world sometimes. We have this double standard, and this double standard leads to all kinds of anger. It leads to all kinds of anger. It lets anger overtake us, or we let anger overtake us because of it. The offenses of others are inexcusable. The offenses of others are the result of their bad character. They're always, everything they do is always intended to hurt me and 
has no justification, right? And because of that, I'm allowed to fill in the blank, teach them a lesson, give them a piece of my mind. Some of you all have given away a lot of pieces of your mind, and it shows. (laughs) I'm kidding. Kidding. Make sure they know their, their own fault. Make sure that they know that they're wrong so they don't do it to somebody else. So I've heard that excuse. Well, I just have to make sure that they, you know, I'm, I'm being angry with them so that they know so they won't do it to somebody else. No, you're not. You're mad and angry because you're prideful and impatient and you want to make this person suffer because you're angry. Don't disguise your lack of control for I'm teaching them a lesson. God's not capable of that. But that's where we go. That's where we go. Now, if you get two people who both feel this way, then you have a marriage. No, I'm just kidding. Then, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> then you have a problem, right? Because it's going to escalate and escalate. <clears throat> Anger comes from pride, and it is the last thing connected to doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And the double standard is dehumanizing because it judges other people in a way that you don't judge yourself and that you would never want to be judged. You want people to assume that when you make a mistake, it was a mistake. But you're not assuming that about them. You're not doing to them what you would have them do to you. Instead, maybe you should do to them what you would want done to you and show them a little grace. Show them a little love. Instead of assuming that they're a liar or a jerk and their character is horrible, maybe give them the same treatment you would want. Maybe they were tired. Maybe they were hungry. Maybe it was a one-off for them. Tough day. Maybe it was their fault. In which case, if it was your fault, what would you want? Forgiveness, grace, love, patience. Maybe that's what you should give them. And if you won't, don't kid yourself. It's your own pride and your own selfishness and your own self-importance that won't let you. Giving into anger says that relationships with others and therefore your ultimate and essential relationship with God are less important, less important than your own self-importance. That's what giving into anger says. God wants unity. We know that. God loves relationship. He wants relationship. He's a trinity. He has relationship with himself. He has relationship with us. We have relationship with each other. He loves all of that. He's all about unity. He's a God of peace, a God of shalom, wholeness. God wants us to be unified in our families. He wants us to be unified among our friends, among whatever, and especially he wants us to be unified within Jesus Christ's church. This is what Jesus says. He's praying. In John 17, 20 through 23, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's us. We are those who believe in Jesus through the word of those who came before us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus wants us to be one, to be unified. 
We are together in him. We are together in God. And our unity, our unity, makes the world know that God sent Jesus. Makes the world know that Jesus is God. Makes the world know that Jesus died and rose again. Makes the world know that the people who God loves, the people who are made in his image and likeness can be saved from their sin. Those truths are known. The evidence for them is in our unity. When we love each other, people are drawn to God. They're drawn to Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus was sent of God when we're unified. So what do you think they believe when we're not? What do you think they believe when we're angry and we say dehumanizing things and we say harsh words and we use contempt for one another? Then what do you think they believe? They believe that we don't even believe it. These people say they believe all people are made in the image and likeness of God. These people say that God created their world and he created them. They believe in Jesus, and look at how he talks to his wife. Look at how that one talks to their child, or how their child talks to them. Look at how those friends treat each other. Look how angry they let themselves get. Why would I believe that they believe that God has made that other person in his image and likeness when they treat that other person like they're worthless, like they're valueless? That's what says what they believe. And people, instead of being drawn towards God, are probably repulsed. Which side of that do you want to be on? We want to be in heaven one day. We want to hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And have him say, listen, the fact that you pushed away anger and offense, that you, that you killed your pride and your self-importance, and that you gave some grace here and some grace there, and that you said kind words or no words if that's what it has to be, but you didn't say contemptuous words. You didn't say raka and fool. You said, I love you. The fact that you did that, I used that to draw people to myself. And there they are. Which one do you want? Because Jesus is very clear about unity. And unrighteous anger has no place, no place in the law and the prophets. No place in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. No place in treating others as we would want to be treated. It doesn't fit. There are two examples in this passage. One is about reconciling with our brother or sister before bringing our gift to the altar. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't come in here on a Sunday morning to worship God, to give your tithes and your offerings, to learn from the word and so on, while you have an offense out there with your sister or your brother that you have not resolved. Clean your side of the street. I understand. Some of you might say, hey, they're not, they're not willing to reconcile with me. Okay. Okay. But is your side of the street clean? Have you forgiven them for the, for the offenses they've caused you? Have you asked for forgiveness for the offenses you've caused them? If at that point they won't reconcile with you, at least you have dealt with the offense. At least you have dealt with the fact that you're off base. Do that before you come and worship God because if you come to worship God without having done that, you're double-minded. You're coming in saying, praise God, I love you. Meanwhile, you've got someone over here who you've been treating like they're worthless and not made in his image and likeness. I don't believe you over here, God, about this person, but I'm going to praise you over here. It's broken. 
He's saying, get that right and then come serve me. Have your relationships in order so that your relationship with me can be right. Get all of this horizontal relationship stuff right so that our vertical relationship can be right. Before you come and give your gift, make it right. Show God that you love him by loving your brother or sister. Then worship. Absolutely worship. But do what's right first. Jesus is about grace, okay? A free gift of grace. You cannot erase your sins and your unrighteous anger by coming to church a bunch. By giving a lot of money. By volunteering in Acts Kids. Although there is a special place in heaven for those people, I think. But you can't erase your sin with that. You can't use ceremony to undo unrighteousness. But we have this tendency to sort of try that. Check church off. I feel good for the week. I can go on having this problem with my brother or sister. This is what D.A. Carson says. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. But Jesus will have none of it. God cares about our hearts. He cares that we sacrifice our pride and our selfishness by fixing relationships with those God loves before coming to the altar. That's what he wants. The second example is about being on your way to court with your brother, with your adversary, and settling. And I'm all for this one. Unless you've hired me, then I want to bill a certain number of hours before we settle, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I just charge you a lot up front. All right, just kidding, just kidding. Back then they had debtor's prisons. I don't know if you are familiar with debtor's prisons, but if somebody owed you money, you could take them to court. If the judge said, yeah, this guy owes you money, you could put him in prison until the money got paid. Now, what's the problem with that? When you're in prison, it's really hard to work. It's hard to earn money to pay off the debt. So what happened is somebody else had to come up with the money to get you out, or you sat there. And he said, you will sit there until you paid the last penny, which you could never do. There's significance to what's being said here. The idea is you need to reconcile with your brother or sister while you're on your way. You need to reconcile and not hold on to anger and division because when the judge rules, you will lose. Settle. Do not let your brother or your sister remain your adversary at least as far as it's in your control, do not let your brother or sister remain your adversary for one minute longer than they have to be. Settle. Reconcile. Make it right. Don't let things that have happened as a result of your anger remain. Now, for those of you who are thinking to yourself, man, it sounds like I can't get angry, and I really like to get angry. I've got some good news for you. There is such a thing as righteous anger. All right, you guys can still be angry sometimes. But here's the thing. Righteous anger is about harm that happens to other people who are made in the image and likeness of God or about dishonoring God who we love with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anger would never and should never be about you and your own pride and your own self-righteousness and your own self-importance. Righteous anger is always about others. You see Jesus getting angry at different times. It's always about others who are being harmed. There is a time and a place for anger. We should be angry that millions of babies, human beings made in the image and likeness of God, are being killed in their mother's wombs. We should be angry about that. We should be angry that we still have bigotry over race and sex in our society. 
that people are oppressed and treated as worth less than other people because of the color of their skin, the language they speak, where they're from, or the fact that they're a woman. All of these things are still bigotry over all of these things. We should be angry that that still happens, that people who are made in the image and likeness of God are treated that way. We should be angry that people use the name of Jesus to peddle false doctrines that hurt people, that rob from people, that harm people, and that they use the name of Jesus to spew hateful things and say hateful things in the name of Jesus Christ that he would never have said. We should be angry that people in this world are starving and sick and don't have access to clean water while so many people in the world are living in ridiculous luxury. We should be angry about that. These are people made in the image and likeness of God, and they're suffering, and they don't have to. We should be angry about all those things, and many more. But that anger is not about our own pride, and it's not about us. It's about other people and the harm that's coming to them. It's an anger based on our love for God and our love for other people, based on the law and the prophets. But I'll be honest with you. We are way less likely to be angry about those things then we are to be angry about the guy who cut us off or the person who offended us or the person who didn't give us enough credit or whatever it happens to be. When's the last time that you got as angry about the suffering and persecution that's happening in the world to, to other believers in the world, to other people in the world? When's the last time you got as angry about that as you did when the guy cut you off? For most of us, probably not. We might feel bad. We might shed a tear when the commercial comes on and the music swells and the kids are starving and whatever. And we should. We should be sad about that. But those are the things worth getting angry about. Your own pride being hurt, not worth getting angry about. Not something you should get angry about. Anger and murder start in the heart from the same place. And they harm people in similar ways, the same ways. They destroy people. They say that others are worthless. They devalue people. They dehumanize people. Watch your heart. We need to watch our hearts for anger. Providentially, in the grace of God, God is good. God is good. And although we could never get out of debtor's prison for the things that we've done, Jesus paid the price. Your selfish, dehumanizing anger, the things that you've said, have been sin, worthy of death and hell, judgment. But Jesus paid it all for you. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus paid for our sin and our anger. Because the truth is, is there's a reason that he's highlighting this. There are people who struggle with different things. You may not be tempted to anger, but some of you are. Some of you that are tempted to anger aren't tempted to other things. And there's sort of these sins that are like out there that everybody sees, and there's sort of these sins that kind of are kept a, a, a secret, and there's sins that are just in your heart that only God knows about. And some of us, I think, want to convince ourselves that because we're not a murderer, that we're not bad. That because we're not a murderer, that we don't really deserve the punishment, the judgment. And Jesus is coming in saying, sorry, bro. Murder and anger are the same. They're the same to me. They come from the same place in your heart. They're the same dehumanizing thing. They're the same spitting on my creation and my children. They're the same thing. If you have been angry, you have done everything necessary to deserve to be in that debtor's prison forever. Jesus talks about hell in this. He actually used the word Gehenna, which is a metaphor they used for hell. It was this valley around Jerusalem where they would take all the 
garbage and the carcasses of dead animals and whatever. There's always a fire burning. It was disgusting. It smelled horrible. It was noxious. It was the, the fumes. It was horrible. It was, it was just a horrible place that they'd take all this stuff, all the waste and whatever, and they'd take it there and it would burn. And this was kind of a metaphor for hell. And he's saying, look, that's where we deserve to be. When we spit on God's creation, we deserve to be thrown out in that place of burning and ugliness. But instead, Jesus died for us. Remember, Jesus got angry, right? He got angry when people were dishonoring God and harming people when he went to the temple and they were stealing from the people and turning God's temple into a, into a horrible place of money-making and oppression. And so he turned over tables. Was that about him? No. His zeal was for the house of the Lord. It was for God. It was for the people. He got angry when people were treated bad. But what happened when he was treated badly? He spoke not a word. They were contemptuous and devaluing. They were yanking his beard out. They were putting a crown of thorns. They were beating him. They were reviling him. They were saying all kinds of things. And he did not come back in anger. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is what it looks like to live like Jesus in righteousness. We do not get angry about the things done to us. We get angry about the harm that comes to God's children. We get angry about the dishonoring of God and his, and his people. We don't get angry about ourselves. And because he went through that, because he could have just gotten angry and been like, zap, no more universe. That's what he could have done. And he would have been right to do so. He'd have been justified in doing so. Instead of that, he took it upon himself on the cross. And now, your unrighteous anger, your dehumanizing words can be forgiven. You can have grace. If this is something that is, is putting conviction in your heart, today is the day to confess and repent and be right with the Lord. Today is the day to, to, to get back into unity with your brothers and sisters that people might believe in Jesus Christ. The gospel is there for you. The good news that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus paid our debt, that our sin and anger can be covered by his blood. That's the good news for you today. So repent, confess, repent, and live righteously. The Lord will take care of it. He's already paid for it. He's already covered it. If you don't know Jesus, if you have never truly become a Christ follower, if you've never really made him Lord of your life, believe that he lived, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, and called him Lord. He's in charge. If you haven't done that, today is the day for you. And all of these things and the fires and stench of Gehenna is forever away from you. And the love and peace of Christ is for you, for eternity. That's what's on the line here today. Well, thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope you got a lot out of it. If you did, we'd love it if you would comment or uh, give us a review or give the track a like. Uh, it really means a lot to us to hear back from people who have um, heard these sermons and have been impacted by it. So share your story with us. Share what is happening in your life um, that this is speaking into. And remember, you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast so that you can get all of our releases as soon as they come out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.